Well, we bow humbly in your presence, Heavenly Father. Grateful for our position in Christ today by your grace. And grateful that because of that grace, we can look at our Lord Jesus and call him a friend and a brother, even though he's a king. Thank you for our Bibles that we hold today, and I pray that we would take its instruction to heart. Father, teach us how to walk humbly in your presence. Teach us to do justice. Teach us to walk in obedience. Teach us to live righteously in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Father, we know that the righteousness of your people is a preserving agent to a country, to a culture. It's our heart desire, Lord, that our country here on its birthday weekend be blessed by you, be characterized by a leadership that is humble in your sight and not puffed up with pride and arrogance, that we would be the kind of country that honors your word and recognizes that you are the one true God. We want to be blessed by you, Lord. We commit ourselves to the hearing of the word, Lord, and and then the doing of it, and so teach us and challenge us Strengthen us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, please, to take your Bibles as we begin and turn to Psalm 11, the 11th Psalm. Why don't we stand together and let's just read this psalm in its entirety. Please stand with me. Psalm 11. We'll read uh, all seven verses of this chapter to prepare our hearts for the message today. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Psalm 11. It's a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. The Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. This morning we're going to continue on in, in kind of a, a sidebar series in our Genesis series. We're working our way through the book of Genesis and taking our time and letting some themes surface out of Genesis that are there as a foundation uh, to a number of, of matters that we see daily on a daily basis in our culture and in our communities and in our own lives. We're in a series right now that I've entitled, kind of a sub-series in Genesis, using Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and eventually chapter 3 as a launching pad, uh, a series that I've entitled, as you can see by your bulletin, When the Word and the World Collide. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, you don't have to live very long when you recognize that uh, you're going to believe some things that generally the world at large around us uh, does not adhere to or hold to. And so you end up uh, like going to Walmart or something with, uh, you know, plaid pants and polka-dotted socks and uh, 
a bright pink striped shirt and a straw hat on, and you just kind of feel different. It's just something a little different. Oh, that's normal? Um, Sabolsky's like, what's, what's wrong with that? And uh, you just are a little bit different. I'd like you to look at Psalm 11, verse 3. We have in Psalm 11 the contrast of the righteous and the wicked and, and the wrath of God that is committed to the wicked. And, but he asked the question, the psalmist asked the question, the question, when the foundations are being destroyed, then what can the righteous do? It's kind of a word picture of, of a country or a home or a community being built as though it were a building, and then the foundations that are upholding the whole thing begin to crumble, begin to be destroyed. I brought with me this morning a piece of rebar. And imagine, if you will, that we've built a strong, sound building. It's worked well. Uh, we've established it on, according to building code, according to the architect's spec. And then one day we come along and you say, you know... I understand the Chinese are given a lot for steel and metal. Let's rip the rebar out of those foundations and footers. Steel's worth a lot per pound right now. Everybody's melting it down and making cars and everything. And so somehow we can get in and we root around and we can pull the rebar, if we could, out of the slabs and out of the footers. And the footers begin to crumble. And we recognize that, you know what? This just isn't such a good idea. What are we going to do here? We've got to fix it up. Well, if you've been a culture watcher, and you live in the culture, so you probably you can't help but observe, you know that we live in a culture that is changing rapidly. And as you, I invite you now to turn over to Genesis chapter 1, as we begin there this morning in a series, this culture series, we're addressing um, a topic that is in some ways an uncomfortable topic. Romans chapter 1 addresses the, the matter of homosexuality as an unnatural thing. And I think some of us, we feel that when we observe a homosexual couple maybe walking down the street or something in a movie or on television and you just, something's not right. We're bouncing off the theme and we'll look at it more in detail in just a minute. But we cannot read Genesis chapter 1 without catching the, the reality that when God created man, he created him male and female. And it's out of that that we addressed the topic of feminism last week and, and gender roles to some degree. And then this week, the matter of human sexuality, specifically the area of homosexuality. As I was addressing just a second ago, it's an uncomfortable topic because for some it, it feels just, it's just, you just don't, it's not a topic that clicks. For others, it's uncomfortable because you've had your heart broken in this area. You've watched a loved one enter this lifestyle. It may have been a child, it may have been a sister or a brother, it may have even been a parent. We're seeing more and more of this. It was interesting, Tasha's with us while her husband Denny is away at some training with CSX Railroad and, uh, in Atlanta, and she's with us for a number of weeks here. And we were talking about my sermon topic this morning, and, and she uh, is uh, a wise old sage at 24, and she said, you know, when I was young, you, um, you, you heard about it, and it was common, but, but now it's like it's everywhere. 
And I think that's true. I think that we've seen a dramatic shift in our culture. And I think that homosexuality has, as a lifestyle, become not only mainstream, but it's become main street. And it's all around us. I have news for you. Um, If you think that this is something that makes you feel uncomfortable because it's around, if you think that this is a battle that we're going to win, you're wrong. I don't mean to be negative, but the battle is already lost on this topic of morality. And we as a culture and a country have essentially wholeheartedly embraced homosexuality as, quote-unquote, a normal lifestyle. So we as the church and as Bible-believing Christians, as we address a topic like this, we find ourselves a minority voice, really a growing minority voice. As we look around, we see a number of things that indicate to us that, that this has gone main street. I was interested as I... Uh, checked the internet a little bit at some websites and was educating myself at a little higher level in preparation for this message. But I, I f- have been hearing in the news and watching and I've had people exhort me when I had a McDonald's cup in my hand, for example, that don't you know that McDonald's has endorsed the homosexual movement? I don't go there anymore. And I really like McDonald's coffee and um, I think that it's pretty good. So I was checking the veracity of some of these things, and I had been hearing about Ford Motor Company, for example. And, you know, what it amounts to is it's the National Gay Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. And what you recognize is is that homosexuality, and actually they lump together, and you see these initials a lot, LGBT, LGBT this, LGBT that. It stands for the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transvestite Individuals. It's all lumped together. There's a progression, isn't there? When I was in high school and and, uh, homosexuality in the 70s was... uh, The movement as a whole was working hard to come out of the closet. They were getting to become aggressive and encouraging one another to, to state who they were and how they were going to live and so forth. You didn't hear so much about bisexuality or transvestism. And now it's very common and very acceptable. But I was looking at the Gay Lesbian National Chamber of Commerce and what you realize is that major corporations are tripping over themselves to identify and to sign on and to be a corporate sponsor of this organization because why? Not necessarily because at McDonald's corporate headquarters they're loaded with homosexuals or they approve of homosexuality, but simply because it is now recognized as a, as a profitable, marketable group. And so money drives the decision to say, we will recognize this group, all right, and we can make money on them. I was surprised to see the, the major corporations that unabashedly identify themselves with this Chamber of Commerce and promote themselves to that community. UPS, Ford Motor Company, IBM, Kodak, McDonald's. I was very interested in the, at the Lesbian Gay Chamber of Commerce website, the American Airlines logo had a slash and then it had the word rainbow in multicolors 
And so that when you went to their chamber of commerce, you could just click and it put you directly over to the American Airlines website. And they promoted themselves at the American Airlines website with this sentence. Quote, if you're searching for an event or discounted American Airlines fare to a popular LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transvestite event, look no more, exclamation point. Get the latest scoop on LGBT gatherings, and American Airlines helps you figure out where events are happening that might be of interest. I don't have to tell you, because you or most of the people in this church are much more uh, up on the pop culture of movies than I am, And uh, I don't have to tell you the the great extent to which Hollywood has gone to present themselves in the box office as homosexuality being a norm. Even making very popular movies and giving great awards to themselves uh, with certain masculine uh, stereotypes like cowboys that these are normal guys who, who, who are live like this. California and Massachusetts have capitulated essentially in their entirety to the whole gay movement. There's nobody who has endorsed it more openly and more in your face than Mayor Gavin of San Francisco. It's interesting to me to see that organizations like even Big Brothers and Big Sisters of America, that they require all 500 of their local affiliates to allow homosexuals as volunteers and mentors to children. Why? They don't want to fight the fight. They don't want to be identified as irrelevant to the culture. You see the news and you see the gay pride parades and the open debauchery on the streets of across America in their cities. Colleges and universities widely offer homosexual clubs and classes It's now not uncommon for homosexual clubs to exist on our high school campuses. I was very interested to see uh, this week, and I knew there was some out there, I didn't know a lot about them, but it was was, uh, amazing to me how prevalent and how uh, it has grown the movement of Christian homosexuality and homosexual Christian churches. I printed off the webpage title of Whosoever, I'm not promoting this just by way of information, and I thought it was interesting. Whosoever, of course, it's from the scriptural phrase, whosoever, may, whosoever will may come. The idea is this is an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. They have multiple uh, sidebars for Bible study helps. They can help you understand what the Bible really says about homosexuality. That's where we're heading this morning. I thought it was interesting that they had a click below for rainbow Christians, where gay Christians meet, and some pictures of two men, pictures of two ladies kissing. So Christian companionship is right there. They're promoting a book that is just incredible called Bulletproof Faith. This book is a practical guide to defending your faith against even the most vicious attacks from those who say a person cannot be both gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and Christian. I want to say this morning that I don't want to come across as vicious. 
I'm sure that I'm in the category of the people as a fundamentalist Christian, a Bible-preaching pastor that they're referencing here, and they've, as they've reoriented sexually, then they've redefined the passages of Scripture that speak explicitly to this subject. I don't want to come across vicious at all. And in fact, homosexuality is one of many sins that our culture is struggling with, of course. And I bring it up because as we read Genesis, like feminism last week, I think that there's a reason, and it is not by mistake, that when we read Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, that we see that God created man, male and female. One of the problems that we have in preaching a message like this and in saying, no, this shouldn't be, and that you're now tampering with the very foundations of a a community, of a culture, of a country, of a people, as you tamper with those foundations, you're going to rock the building. It's going to fall on you eventually. One of the problems that you have, and it's a growing problem, and I believe in a few more years, probably will become a much bigger problem, is that if you say anything against the homosexual lifestyle, unlike any other sin that you can preach against, uh, for example, heterosexual immorality, adultery, fornication, and so forth, if you address this particular sin, you will be categorically categorized as homophobic, bigoted, and hate speech. This is not hate speech this morning. It's the best of my ability for us to understand the culture in which we live and for us to grasp God's word. I do want to say, too, that it's very possible, and I encounter folks on occasion more and more, um, multiple times a year now, talk with friends, people in the church, people around us where uh, a child has entered this lifestyle and they're broken. They don't know what to do. They caught them by surprise. What's going on here? And I want to recognize the fact that in our culture now, we have a huge problem with young people being confused about all of this and finding themselves struggling with their own gender identity, saying, what what is this with these feelings I have and what's going on here? And I recognize that there are people who will say, I don't want to go down this road. It's just I feel that God made me this way. I want to encourage you to know that that God didn't make you that way. Uh, There's many complicated reasons probably why you feel that way or a person can feel that way. But God made us um, with a purpose and by design and uh, God didn't make any mistakes. In Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, as we approach the, the word here for just a, a few more minutes. Um, I wanted to kind of break this down in, in a, a couple of categories. The first, as we understand now how we want to go, is let's talk about this foundation. On what do we build our lives and how is it then? Because it kind of raises the question, all right, if all this is going on and if companies like Volvo are promoting themselves openly to the gay community because not all roads are straight. And so you, you have to say to yourself, okay, what is right? What is wrong? How do we know what's right and wrong? 
On what basis do we determine right from wrong? That's the foundation of the house. What are we going to build on? And how are we going to measure, you know, our tape measure? Our, how, do we, how do we deal with this? Of, well, my tape measure says there's 12 inches to a foot. Somebody else says, nah, that's not the way my tape measure is going to be. And we build our house from all different angles, from, uh, you know, in all different systems. So let's ask the question, first of all, about the foundation. What do we build or base right from wrong upon? Secondly, we'll go to Genesis 1 and 2, and and let's look at the blueprint. In Genesis, I see the blueprint. It's kind of like we're going to build our building, and and we're going to build our foundation ultimately on the standard of the Word of God. But then as we we build our house, we have to look at the spec, and, and Genesis is the blueprint. This is what the architect of creation drew for us. But thirdly... I want to return and conclude with the rebar again and and look at some more passages of Scripture with the idea that, uh, like a friend of mine out of Chicago who works for an engineering firm, he has the greatest job. And any time I run into him, I'm always very interested in it because his job is to fly around the country and to examine structural failure, bridges and and big buildings and, and projects and I'll say, well, where you been? And he'll say, well, I've been out in, uh, you know, out west or something or, in, you know, in the Midwest. He's all over the country at some big building or some project that they were building and a huge building and all of a sudden something started to give. And, and so the structural failure, and in Scripture we have a warning about the structural failure. If you do these things, this is what will happen. Don't build your house like this or it will fall down. And we kind of end with a bit of a warning. Back to the foundation. Just very quickly, on what basis? Let's just remind ourselves. On what basis then will we use to measure this building and this foundation and this footer? What makes it right? What makes it wrong? I think we see in our culture, pandemic is the foundation of personal choice. Personal choice. I can do this because it's right for me. Well, what makes it right for you? I decided. And so one of the things that we're going to see right away is the relevance of the creation-evolution debate because if we're not created by a, a loving creator God by design who has a standard and we indeed have evolved from some premortal soup, then what, what gives you a right to tell me what to do if we both just evolved and there's nobody planning this thing? We're all just here by accident anyway. You follow my logic? There's no overriding moral purpose. We're just on this evolutionary highway. How can you tell me how to manage my life and I have no business telling you how to manage your life because there's no overriding guiding principles given to us because there's no one over, overseeing this mess. But you say, but Pastor Van, it does make sense because we've learned that we have to love one another to get along in society. We haven't learned that at all. I know lots of societies where they're killing each other. And how do you know that's not part of the evolutionary survival of the fittest and that evolutionary's not, evolution's not alive and well today? I'm going to pack a six-gun. You look at me, crooked. I'm going to pop you. You say, you can't do that. Yes, I can. Why not under this system, you see? Who's to say it's right and wrong? And so this personal choice thing is out of control in our country. We have also another scary concept, and that's the public voice. And I I even hear Christian leaders 
on the radio and in magazines addressing this. And they'll use as an argument uh, that our country shouldn't go down certain roads of decision-making. And they'll say, still in America, you know, 51% of the people don't believe this is right. I'll tell you something. Public voice is a terrible thing on which to decide something is right or wrong. Now, we do that in a lot of ways. We come to an agreement on certain things. But I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew, that broad is the road that, what, leads to destruction, and many there are on that road. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Listen, it's, po- it's possible to be in a majority and to be absolutely wrong, if there's a such thing as right and wrong, as an absolutism. So we can't base ourselves on personal choice. An an evolutionist has no other option than to base it on personal choice or a consensus of the majority. We're obviously seeing that political legislation is not a good way to legislate morality. One court system overrules the people. uh, Then they'll vote in a new court system and they'll change their decisions while the Senate does this and the Congress does that and nobody can agree and one state does this and one state does that and we have a hodgepodge mess on our hands. And so we would maintain that when we go back to Genesis and we have the creation story that we have the very foundation of our justice system in the sense that we have a judicial God. We have a God who created us and by design he knows how we work and when we open the blueprint of Genesis chapter 1 and we unroll it and we say, okay, how did the architect design us? Not only did he design us to function physically a certain way, but he designed us to function emotionally a certain way and he designed us to function spiritually a certain way way and he's revealed himself to us in his word with standards and you have to say well what is that all based on how do I know it's the right tape measure what is it based upon how come God can just decide well that's kind of an arrogant statement but he can do it because he's God but what I'm getting at is you need to understand that that for example in Exodus chapter 20 when God laid down the 10 commandments God didn't just go pick up some rules you know I like blue paint, so thou shalt paint all your houses blue. It's not in the Bible, you know? I think that, you know, um, I, I like horses, so thou shalt eat beef, but we don't eat horse. God didn't make rules like that. He just picked stuff out because he has opinions or something. But God based his, in quote-unquote, rule of law or his standards for living, they spring from what? They spring from the very well of his character. Because of who he is, he laid down rules and laws for us, his creation, to live by or live accordingly to. He's a holy God, so he gave us rules to keep us from things that are sinful. And he knows, and in his wisdom, and if you study it, and the Bible always works, it's amazing... Okay, let's say, uh, okay, he condemned heterosexual immorality. Okay, a husband's to love his wife, and we're warned over and over in Scripture to learn to control your body in a way that is honorable and pure. Why? What makes it pure? It's pure because it springs from the purity of God himself in his own character. But it makes sense also for a husband to love his wife because why? Because God knows that if you go all over the neighborhood, the next thing you know... You're fighting with your wife. You got kids all over the neighborhood you can't support. You got the neighbors shooting at you. You got chaos in the neighborhood because you've slept with 13 of the neighbors' wives. 
So God knows his character always works. It always functions in order. And so out of his holiness, out of his purity, out of his his grace and his mercy, he's designed us to function to maximum potential. And there is a such thing as right. And there is a such thing as wrong. And the things that are wrong are the things that disgrace his person. They disgrace and go against his character. And so that's the basis of the word of God. And that's why we humble ourselves before the word of God and the will of God, because it goes back to our relationship with him and his very character. So if he says, don't do this, we don't do it, whether we understand it or not, because A, it's based upon his character. B, it's not by mistake. It always will work better. We will function better inside the realm of obedience inside the law of God rather than outside the law of God. God didn't make up rules just so he could have some people to zap. I really want to open the earth one of these days and swallow up a whole group of people. So I'm going to say, you know, burning temple oil, if you're not of the priesthood of Aaron, is going to get you swallowed up like this happened in Numbers in the Old Testament. He didn't do that, but he had a design, and he's a holy God, and he wants to teach us about himself. And all of these rules point us to him. That's the foundation. Now to the blueprint. Can we learn from the architect himself what he wrote down in the pattern, on the design? Let's look in Genesis. And let me me click off seven things that we learn from the blueprint. These are verses that we've kind of camped on. And it's out of these verses that we've seen the very uh, topics come. Some of the topics have come, like feminism last week and evangelical feminism theological liberalism, gender roles. Is there such thing as a role for a male, a role for a female in marriage, in the church, and so forth? And we dealt with that. First, uh, Genesis chapter 1, begin with verse 27. Look what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what a lot of people do, is say you were building a house. And you have to have an approved set of prints. And you have an architect or an engineer who's worked up your prints. And you're building a house and you look at it and you say, you know, that's just dumb to have a wall all the way down through the middle of this house. Let's get rid of that wall. I really like an open house. You know? And you can say whatever you want, but the architect generally puts a wall down through the middle of the house for a reason. It's holding up the roof. And if you take it out of there, you've got to figure out another way to hold up the roof. Either design your trusses or carry the weight to the outside walls. You've got to do something. You don't just say, I don't care if it's designed that way. Let's just change it. And when we go to Genesis, you have to just see that when God created, it wasn't arbitrary creation. It wasn't hodgepodge. It was all by design. It's, it's crafted. It's well done. It makes sense. Here's some reasons why God created us male and female. It's not incidental. And in verse 27, we see that to fully express the image of God, and we talked about this last week, to fully express the image of God in humankind, mankind, he created them male and female. Reason number one, to fully express the image of God, he created us male and female. Isn't that interesting? There must be something to it. He goes on in verse 28 to say to the male and the female... God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. The second reason God, by the the, all-wise architect, designed us to be male and female, this is kind of a no-brainer, but stay with it, 
is so that we could fulfill God's command to procreate and fill the earth. You see, God could have done all kinds of things. He could have said to Adam, you know what I think? I think you're going to love deer hunting, Adam. I'm going to create for you a hunting buddy. And you guys are going to have so you're going to live in a cabin and you don't have to take a bath and you get to hunt all the time and you and your hunting buddy, your trapping buddy, you can just live happily ever after. God could have done that, couldn't he? But he didn't. Part of the reason is, is because Adam and his hunting buddy, Jenk, wouldn't have been able to fill the earth. And God, our all-wise creator and designer, said, fill the earth. And so what did he do? Lo and behold, he put a man and a woman together. And it works. Ain't that something? Third reason. Over to chapter 2, verse 18. Look what he says. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is a better spot for my hunting partner illustration, isn't it? Adam, you need a partner. You're alone. This is the only time, as we emphasized last week, when God looked over all of his creation. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Oh, it's not good, Adam, for you to be alone at all. And as I referenced last week, you know, a man can have companionship with a dog. And it's good friendship. But God made a suitable helper and Another reason he made a female for the male is to solve the problem of aloneness. My brother-in-law has been in Guam, Howard Merrill, who preached here a couple weeks ago in our medical leave absence. He's on a mission board and they, and they have a Bible college in Guam, the island of Guam. Fly to Japan, Tokyo, switch planes and fly straight south into the Pacific and you'll hit Guam. And he was there for some meetings and I picked him up at Dulles Airport on Friday night here. He's been gone for two weeks. And uh, he and my sister have a great marriage and, and they love each other. And I was talking, Jonathan was with me and I can't remember how it came up, but Jonathan asked a question or something and I said, uh, well, just ask Uncle Howard. He's just proven the Bible's true that it's not good for a man to be alone. And he said, that's the truth. And he was ready to get home. He went and slept on our couch because he had been on a plane for 24 hours we got home to our house about 11 o'clock. He woke up at 4 a.m. to use the bathroom, and he left. He got in his truck and headed to Covington, Virginia to find Mama. Ready to go home. He was around a bunch of good guys over there in Guam. He was at his favorite brother-in-law's house. Listen, you know it's true. It's just not the same. And God made a woman to solve the man's aloneness problem, he was a loving, wise creator, wasn't he? He did it as a full reflection of his image, male and female. He did it to fulfill the mandate of procreation. He did it to solve our problem of aloneness. Similarly related in verse 18, he says it was a suitable helper. He created us male and female because that's, that's what is suitable. The architect knew exactly what it was. The architect knew not to put drywall up on the roof and shingles you know, on the bathroom walls. It's not suitable for that. The architect knows what he's doing and here's the pattern. Don't violate the pattern. You're going to get into trouble. 
He did it, verses 23 and 24. Bible students everywhere essentially agree that this is the, is the God-ordained pattern for marriage in the home. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of the man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Another reason God created male and female was to ordain the marriage relationship for what it is. Can you imagine a bunch of highly educated grown men and women in the highest offices of our land, one of the most enlightened cultures ever, in one of the most important buildings, in one of the most important rooms, spending hours trying to come to an agreement on what constitutes a marriage? It's mind-boggling. It just proves the Bible's true. I say it all the time, but in Romans, and believing themselves to be wise, they become a bunch of fools. How dumb can you get? Well, Satan is a powerful deceiver. And the world refuses to admit that we have a creator, and so they block it all out, and we can come up with all kinds of evil imaginations on our heart and create all kinds of systems. But God, architect, he drew up the plan. The all-wise architect created us male and female to fully reflect his image, to procreate, to solve our loneliness, to prove what a suitable helper was, to ordain the marriage relationship. He did it to define and multiply the family unit. Look at verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to what? Be united not to his army platoon, Okay? Not to his, you know, Boy Scout troop, as good as all that stuff is and as fun as it is, but be united to his wife. This is the multiplication of the family unit as the architect designed it. One family turns into another family, turns into another family. It works, doesn't it? Works, Matthew List, doesn't it? You leave your father and mother and you cleave to your wife. Isn't it a good thing? And now we have two families. We have two Lisk families. Isn't that amazing? And it's right there in Genesis. Exactly what God said to do. The family unit is based on a mother and a father, a male and a female. Finally, it is to beautifully come together as a man and a wife in the intimacy of marriage. Look what he says in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's a picture of the sexual union in a marriage relationship. And I'll tell you something. Two men do not duplicate that and two women do not duplicate that or multiples of any other such party. It is a perversion of God's plan. And if you're an engineer and you look at the units, two men just don't come together right. And two women don't come together right. Don't try imagining that. But a man and a woman come together just right, don't they? Just right. We have such a wise architect, and when we unroll the blueprint, you can't improve it. And so the foundation is based upon the absolutes of God's Word. The model of the family is based on His architectural design and His work. Thirdly, now, let's go examine some places where the foundations have crumbled. And let's go see why the rebar wasn't put in the concrete just right, and let's see what happens I found it very interesting at the Christian websites that I saw this week and the 
the homosexual Christian websites and, and some of the homosexual Christian materials I was reading, that one of the things that they do uh, very thoroughly and that they work very hard at is they note there's about five passages in God's Word that speak specifically to the, the matter of homosexuality and they have reinterpreted every passage from the traditional interpretation and from the plain understanding of the language and I'll mention some of that as we go. But let's look and see where the systems haven't worked well. You see, we're not the first culture that struggled with this problem. We're not the first culture where men began to burn after men and women began to burn after women and, and, and so forth. The first one that we encounter is right away in Genesis chapter 19. Now, we're going to look at this more thoroughly, not so much on the topic of homosexuality. It will come up, but exactly what's happening in Genesis 19 in about... 22 years from now, when we get to Genesis chapter 19 in our series, we'll study and we'll see the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting, and at the Whosoever website and at Mel White, who used to be a great Christian leader, some of you remember back uh, 20 plus years ago when there was a film that came out that was a documentary about the Jimmy Jones cult and the Guyana massacre and the purple Kool-Aid and stuff. Mel White's the one who produced that. Mel White's the guy who narrated, and you see him throughout the whole movie. A few years after that, Mel White came, quote, out of the closet as a homosexual. He now leads an organization and founded an organization called Soul Force. Some of you have heard of it. It's been in the news a lot. S-O-U-L Force, F-O-R-C-E. And he is out of Lynchburg, Virginia, and they go around to college campuses. They were right here at Patrick Henry, and they, at least they were going to come, I think they were here, and they go on campus and they try to infiltrate the campus and engage the students in debate and they kind of get in your face a little bit and uh, try to show you that they're Christians too and that they're homosexual and that you're wrong about your view and Mel White is very aggressive in attacking fundamental Christianity and their views. Mel White and others, there's a very liberal theologian that's a Catholic priest named uh, Spong or Sponge, I can't remember his name. He's written extensively on these things. He's a homosexual priest. Both of them are in agreement that the sin of Sodom was not sexuality or homosexuality, but it was inhospitality. That they did not treat these people well. Let's read just a minute of it, and we, won't, we don't have time to dig deep, but I want you to see what happens and what God's view was It says, verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them. This is the community. Uh, Let's back up a little bit. Just look at verse 1. That's where the two angels that were like men came into Lot's house. He lived in Sodom. Lot was Abraham's nephew. They were going to stay in the town square. Lot knew that was no good. He talked them into staying into his house. He then has the the Eastern tradition of being responsible for the well-being of his guests. And... uh, They said they would spend the night in the square, the end of verse 2, but he insisted strongly that in verse 3 that they go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them. Before they had gone to bed, verse 4, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out with us so that we can have sex with them. Lot then goes on, you remember the story, in a a perverse sort of... uh, thinking he defends his guests 
by offering his, his young adult virgin daughters to the crowd, knowing that they, they were men who did not want women and they would turn them down, but trying to, show, trying to become some kind of a negotiator and, and to appease them and say, well, you, I offered you my daughters, but you can't have my guests. We don't want your daughters. It says that they pushed against them. They hardly could get, the, get in the door. Just like foaming at the mouth, berserk, pressing in with homosexual passion, rage, bizarre. And you read some of these kinds of stories in the homosexual community. And they say it wasn't sexual sin. You know, later God rained down judgment, wrath upon him. Lot barely got out. His wife turns around to look back. I take it with a longing heart for the community that she would miss. And God turned her into a pillar of salt, killed her on the spot. Look at the end of your Bible in Jude, verse 7. And see if this helps shed any light on it. How can this be inhospitality? And they'll say, well, the words were translated wrong. How are you going to defend that? You can make the Bible say anything you want. You know, do you see how where you've got to make Genesis chapter 1 not be a creator God so you can have evolution? Because if Genesis chapter 1 doesn't make sense, then Genesis chapter 2 doesn't make sense. And if Genesis chapter 2 isn't real and doesn't make sense, then we can get Genesis chapter 3 not to make sense, and therefore I don't have a sin nature either. And on it goes down the line. Look at Jude, verse 7. Look what it says. In, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as examples of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. I'll tell you something. One of the scariest things about America today is our complete tolerance, endorsement, and acceptance of sinful perversions. You cannot avoid the wrath of God. All right? It's not a threat. I don't know what God's going to do. I pray for His grace on us. But listen... America's a great country and we have a lot to offer and the church still has the freedom to speak here. But we are a perverted country and you know it and you see it all the time. Please don't pay money to go see movies to be entertained by that perversion. You're God's people. Don't do that. We see the foundations crumble with this kind of behavior. The clock has done ticked away its time. and I've been really growing the early service by preaching too long at the second service, I've noticed. We have illustration in Leviticus. Let me just wrap up with a few thoughts. In Leviticus, we have illustrated the death penalty for homosexuals. When a man lies down with a man like he lies down with a woman, it's an abomination, God said. The homosexual... Activist Christians will say, well, you're only holding the part of that Levitical law. It said there, it says not to eat shellfish and you eat shrimp. And it says not to weave certain kinds of cloth of thread together to make certain kinds of cloth. Listen, God was about separating his people. You're right. Some of these things we do now, we eat shrimp and things. But I'll tell you this. He didn't repeat that instruction in the New Testament. Okay? There's lots of, of angles here and lots of thought. He didn't call for the death penalty for eating shellfish and for sexual immorality. And you read it in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. 
He gives a whole list, bestiality and all kinds of things, and homosexuality and lesbianism. And God says it's an abomination and you're to kill him. In other words, this is not appropriate for God's people because it's not normal. In Romans chapter 1, we have a clear statement of the hearts of men and women burning for one another, leaving the normal use of the man and the normal use of the woman and going for each other. What's going on there? The homosexual Christian activist says that that was Roman temple prostitutes. It wasn't normal people. And furthermore, it's also speaking to heterosexuals who did homosexual acts, so it was an abomination in God's eyes. But if you're homosexual, you're to be true to your homosexuality. If you're heterosexual, you'll be true to your heterosexuality. And it's a sin when you do the opposite. That's not there in Romans chapter 1. It is clearly about the downgrade of a culture who hardens its heart from God, turns to worshiping the things that are not God. They worship the creation rather than the creator. And along with turning away from God and becoming an idolater at any level, and it's hard to find a more idolatrous nation than the United States of America, by the way, you will also track in every culture that with idolatry comes sexual immorality. And the longer you proceed down that path, the more dramatic and gross the sexual sin becomes. And we're seeing it in America. Somebody says, how come they we're seeing so much of this now? Because we've been turning our hearts away from God for a long time. And we have now created a culture of incredible confusion among our young people. And so our young people see so many things and we're entertained by it and we look about it and they read about it and they're told by their teachers at school that it's normal for, you know, for Johnny to have two dads or whatever and this is all normal and good and you get kicked out of school if you say anything about it. And so teachers are afraid to speak and principals are afraid to take a stand. And so children are now growing up in this culture and then they have some feelings inside that might be fully normal for an adolescent child to feel as they sort through their gender, their gender development and, and enter pubescence, and then they think, oh, I, that's me. I, I got excited about that, and I must be that. And, so they, and there's all kinds of reasons. But part of it is the product of a confused world in which we live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and turn there and we close. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. The Apostle Paul lists off a bunch of sins, some of which many of us are guilty of. And he said, this is not the kind of people who enter the kingdom of God. In that list, you'll notice that he lists in verse 10, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders. Now back up to verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, okay? That's clearly heterosexual sin at all levels. Then he says, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. You will not enter the kingdom of God. What's he talking about? The question then, can you be a homosexual and a Christian? I would stubbornly maintain there's no such thing as a homosexual. There's just such thing as a person who engages in homosexual, ongoing homosexual activity. Okay? And you can be confused and you can have all kinds of feelings and passions. Okay? The answer is yes and no. Yes, a Christian can do any sin. 
and by God's grace be forgiven. But if you study 1 John 3, you clearly see that when we are in an ongoing sin and we rationalize it and we justify it and we live in comfort, that he says that is not a child of the light. That is not somebody who's walking in the truth. Listen, what you'll find is that, and I've had heterosexual men are the ones that I learned this lesson from early on. You want to see a bunch of guys change their theology to fit their lifestyle, talk to a man who's having an affair on his wife. His theology just goes out the window, and that's what's happened in the, in the homosexual community as well. We alter our theology to fit our lifestyle. We can't do that. We're operating on a standard. The standard is the word of God. But I want you to notice as Paul completes that list in verse 11 what he says, and that is what some of you were. You don't have to be trapped in this lifestyle. I know that it's a highly encompassing, highly entangling lifestyle. And I don't mean to oversimplify it, but I do want to say that the cross of Christ is adequate for the forgiveness of any sin. And if you're still alive and breathing, God can forgive you of your sin. And Christ died for all this sin. He can make you to be a new creation in Christ. Enter into that new life with confidence. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to get help. Maybe there's some mommies here who have little boys they wonder about, and what's, you know, it's kind of what's going on. I encourage you to read Dr. James Dobson's book, Bringing Up Boys, Chapter 9, The Origins of Homosexuality. Dr. Dobson does the best job of anything I've ever seen on why boys particularly turn to that lifestyle. And I consider Dr. Dobson a very wise man. You personally could be sitting here this morning and saying, but Pastor Van, you don't know what I feel like on the inside. I am totally confused about my gender orientation. And maybe you've even crossed inappropriate lines. I would say to you that you need to seek the help of a trained counselor. There are answers. It's no different than a man. And I've had friends through the years, my father's friends, who've had, you can't count on all your hands and your toes, all the women they had in heterosexual immorality. And they say, well, I, I just can't help it. I love women. No, that's not true. Regardless of what you feel like on the inside, we don't base our decisions on our feelings. We base it upon the word of God. And then there's ways of getting help and getting victory through that. You need to seek the help of a trained counselor. Here's what I would encourage you to do if this is a need in your life. In all confidence... Email me this week to my personal computer, FPC Van. It's on the bulletin, FPC Mail. Change mail to Van. FPC Van, it comes right to my desktop. Nobody else sees it. And say, Pastor Van, I have some questions in this area. I'd like to seek counsel or whatever. I'll help you find the right, trained, godly people who can help you sort that through. It's possible you're in the lifestyle or know somebody in the lifestyle and you want to help them. There are so many good helps now in the Christian community for example, www.loveoneout is an excellent place to start for phenomenal resources of help. Love, W-O-N-O-U-T, Love One Out. It's a focus on the family-generated ministry. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please. These are pretty big topics and in some ways it's hard to deal adequately with them completely. I hope that I've been able to show you this morning 
that we base our moral standard upon the Word of God, that we have a design from our loving Heavenly Father who's the architect of the world as to what a family should be. And we do have specific examples in Scripture where the foundations have crumbled and the utter chaos that results from that. I trust that Fellowship Bible Church will always stand for the truth of God's Word in a loving and graceful manner, but yet in a firm and courageous manner. I do believe that this is the, the topic that in the years ahead will be used to try to silence our pulpits and bring great pressure against the Christian fundamental church. But in your own life today, maybe you have a loved one who's struggling in this area. Boy, oh boy. Ask God for strength and for wisdom. I don't know what really to tell you other than to keep loving them, keep praying for them. As you have opportunity, point them to help. This morning, if you've failed in this area, maybe bisexuality, some other areas like this, listen, God's grace is sufficient and you can cry out to your loving Heavenly Father who through the blood of Jesus Christ will forgive you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. Enter into that forgiveness today. Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know the areas that we need strengthen. You know the areas that tempt us. And so, Father, help us to be true to your word and help us to be uh, just um, characterized by righteous living in this dark world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.